First Peter chapter 5, we have a very, very impactful set of scriptures to look at today. If you've experienced warfare of late, you're in good company to be able to uh, just have some profound things taught in this final chapter of First Peter. And here, let's throw this out there. Um, Any of you struggling with anything that is ongoing, not just the enemy tripping you up um, differently, but something that's kind of you noticed in your life, maybe something that's a reoccurring theme. Anybody here? Raise your hand. Okay. So good chapter for that here, and we'll see. Uh, Lord willing, how we can get victory in some of those areas, but uh, be encouraged, be encouraged, don't be discouraged. God loves you, God is with you, He cares for you, this chapter is going to reveal that, and um, you're in good company. <coughs> Father, we ask your blessing upon this time as we uh, just have this opportunity to study this section of Scripture, and I just thank you, Lord, I thank you for what you've revealed to me and uh, what you're doing in our church, in this fellowship, Lord. And so we just pray that you would continue, Father, to raise up individuals and that you would just empower them, that they would know, Lord, that you are with them and for them and that you desire uh, to use them as an extension of who you are, your loving hands, your listening ear, your mouthpiece, your feet that take um, this precious message to a lost world. And so, bless this time, Lord, as we offer it up to you. In Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. So, uh, Peter is speaking in First Peter of suffering within the church. He, last time we were together in verses 1 through 4 in chapter 5, he spoke to the elders specifically, and he told us what to look for in elders. We should have elders that are shepherds, and those shepherds would have a heart that is after God's own heart. God is our ultimate true shepherd, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Um, and that shepherd should predominantly be doing two things, feeding and protecting or warning, making sure that not only are we feeding the sheep, but letting them know that there are counterfeits out there. And Second Peter, we're going to see, he deals with that at length, uh, what the false looks like, what the hireling looks like, what the phony shepherds and, and what their motivations are. And so we looked at all of that last week, uh, what, uh, that we're in good company. Peter is an elder, just like the other elders that he's speaking to. He's a fellow elder and he is leading by example. He had much to learn as he stumbled in so many areas as he walked with Jesus and God had taught him so much through those mistakes, through those failures, through the humanity that Peter uh, was able to um, show, you know, in the Gospels as you read and study the Gospels in the life of Peter. So he goes on in 1 Peter chapter 5, starting at verse 5, he says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you. So, so not only the younger people, but now he says all of you. Be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
And so we're just continuing on the theme of where he was speaking to shepherds. But then he says, hey, likewise, if, if shepherds are going to submit to you by being uh, submitted to God and teaching you and being able to warn you, then you likewise, how about you submit as well to the leaders and the elders that God has raised up and not only the younger ones, younger ones for sure need to do that. Why? Because they're young. And this is not chronological age. This is maturity and years in the Lord. And so when you're young, you just don't know what you don't know. And that's a good thing. And that could be a very bad thing. And so we are to be clothed with humility. Humility is demonstrated by submission. It is the ability to cheerfully put away our own agenda for God's even if God's agenda is expressed through another person. And so if you say, I don't need anybody to tell me what to do, I hear directly from God, then you have pride. Because God wants to speak through his leaders. God wants to speak through uh, his pastors as they teach the word of God. God wants to speak through godly men and women in your life. God wants to speak to you through all kinds of different ways. And so, no, you can't just say, I don't need anybody I hear from God. We need one another, and we need to be submitted to one another in their strengths. Uh, an example of that was this uh, Sunday after the message, somebody came into the prayer room, and uh, she felt that she had a word from the Lord for me, and I let her share that word. And as I'm kind of fishing around in my head, I'm thinking, this doesn't really relate. I'm not, I'm not tracking it. I'm not following it. But at the same time, God forbid, I be closed off to hear from God as he wants to speak through somebody who feels that they had a word. So as I kind of sat with it, I kind of gave her some, well, maybe it's this and maybe it's that. And, you know, as I sat with it, maybe there was a couple things that we can relate to what she was sharing with me. And so never, ever do we want to be closed, clothed, closed, closed from hearing from somebody speaking on behalf of the Lord into our lives. We always want to be open to that. Of course, we know there's kooks out there. We know there's people out there that, uh, you know, they want to tell you God's will for your life. Uh, God's will for my life is found in his word. Uh, so as long as it conforms to the word, doesn't uh, deny that. But you have to remain open. God wants to express his will oftentimes through another person. So this again idea of be clothed with humility, the phrase be clothed translates a rare word that referred to a slave putting on an apron before serving, even as Jesus did before washing the disciples' feet there in John 13, verse 4. And so that's how we're to be clothed. We, we put on this apron, clothed with humility. Some marks of humility, the willingness to perform the lowest and littlest services for Jesus' sake, um, consciousness of our own inability to do anything apart from God, Number three, the willingness to be ignored of men. Who are you serving? Are you serving man or are you serving God? Do you need to be commended for everything you do? Do you need to be patted on the back? Do you need a, a reward, a bumper sticker, <laughs> I don't know. A, a ribbon? You know, No, you're serving the Lord and you do it as under the Lord. And guess what? Imperfect man ain't going to always acknowledge and accommodate you. Sometimes it's going to go without, but you've got to be willing in humility because you know who you're serving. You're serving the Lord when you, when you serve. Uh, number four, not so much self-hating or, uh, what's this word, depreciation, as self, 
forgetfulness and being truly other-centered instead of uh, self-centered. I saw this yesterday. Roxanne and I had an opportunity to go to Disneyland. Uh, we got in free because somebody blessed us. Um, and so it was pretty cool. But we were on the tram riding back, um, and I saw this guy struggling with a, with a, um, a wheel, uh, stroller. And nobody like would hold the door open for him and the tram, and the tram shuts, the door shuts, and then it kind of clasps and it locks up. So I kind of reached around, I opened the door, let him get in. And, and then as the people in his row were sitting, dude just went out and just walked out. And I was like, man, bro, you just saw that guy struggling to get the thing in. And you know, he's going to struggle to get it out. He's carrying this big old, you know, he could have carried all six of his family members in that stroller. He's like, Help the bro out, you know. But I think I think we live in a world where people are oblivious to one another, and they don't they don't see the needs that are represented. They don't see that right in front of them. There's so many opportunities to just have your eyes open and pay attention. People are in need, and so again, a sign of humility, not so much self-hating, um, but just other-centered instead of self-centered. Now, this word resist, the verb, vividly pictures God as one who places himself in battle array against, against such individuals. Do, you, do, do any of us want that? God resists the proud? That God would set himself up in battle array against you? Nobody in their right mind would want that, would they? You're, you're working against, can you fight God and win? Never. Never. So that we would be very, very careful of this pride that we all struggle with to one degree or another. Because pride is simply self. And it's filled with self. And it's self-centeredness. And it's, it's you first. And it's, you know, what about me? And all of that in, in its ugly forms is truly pride. Grace and pride are eternal enemies. Pride demands that God bless me in light of what I think I deserve. Grace deals with me on the basis of what, God, what is in God, not on the basis of anything in me. You just appeal to God's grace and you look to God and his graciousness and what he wants to do in spite, not because of you. Pride is, this is what Meyer writes, pride is one of the most detestable sins, yet does it find lodgment in earnest souls? Though we often speak of it by some lighter name. We call it independence, self-reliance. We do not always discern in it the hurt feeling which retires into itself and nurses it. I can't even see. Nurses its sorrows in a sulk. We are proud of our humility, vain of our meekness, and putting on the saintliest look we wonder whether all around are not admired for us, for our lowliness. And so it's very subtle. The minute you think you're humble and begin to express it, you've lost that genuine humility. Uh, for me, it's been a, a road. It's been a, an incredible road. I, I remember at times in my life, God specifically telling me, Johnny, humble yourself or I will humble you. And that's one of those sitting up straight in your seat. It's kind of, whoa, I hear you, Jesus. And I got to be honest with you, I was clueless as it related to what that meant. I didn't know how to do that. That was not in my DNA. 
humble myself. I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do that. And so I just remember just step by step, God just breaking me down and breaking me down and breaking me down until that foundation was solid. It was nothing but God being able to build on that. And so wouldn't trade it for the world, wouldn't wish it upon my worst enemy. But at the same time, Matt, so thankful for it because there's a closeness to God. There's a, an understanding of who God is. There's a recognition and all of that. Spurgeon says, if you are willing to be nothing, God will make something of you. The way to the top of the ladder is to begin on the lowest rung. In fact, in the church of God, the way up is to go down. But he that is ambitious to be at the top will find himself before long at the bottom. So a lot of quotes from Spurgeon I found for this chapter. Okay? So God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Boy, do we desire grace and do we all need grace. He gives grace to the humble. So we want to be humbled. And, and it's, not, it's not a hard concept to understand. Jesus, others, you. And you can acknowledge the gifts that God has given you. It's okay. And when somebody gives you a compliment, you can say, thank you. Because false humility, ah, oh, no, not, I mean, <laughs> shut up. Somebody's giving you a compliment, say thank you. Well, thank you. Thanks for noticing. Appreciate that. To God be the glory. But don't be dumb about it, because that's prideful as well. And so, such a tough thing. Verse 6, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Casting all your care upon him. True humility is shown by our ability to cast our care upon God. It is proud presumption to take things into our own worry and care about things that God has promised to take care of. That's a tough one. So to the degree that you worry is to the degree that you're not trusting God. And you're taking matters into your own hands. Because you think by your worrying, you can do better than God can do with your situation. And that is tough, especially for the worrier. Why we worry? Does God love you? Is God all-powerful? Can he not do for you what he desires to do? Why would you worry? Why would you be anxious? Spurgeon used the illustration of a man who came to move your furniture, but he carried a huge and heavy backpack of his own. He complains that he finds it difficult to do the job of moving your furniture. Would you not suggest that he would find it easier if he laid his own burden aside? so that he can carry yours. In the same way, we cannot do God's work when we are weighed down by our own burdens and worries. Cast them upon him and then take up the Lord's burden, which is a light burden and a yoke that fits us perfectly. Isn't that a neat picture? We're carrying all this weight, the weight of the world, and we're wondering why we feel so burdened and so heavy and so laden and so yucky. Spurgeon says, this work of casting 
can be so difficult that we need to use two hands to do it. The hand of prayer and the hand of faith. Prayer tells God what the care is and asks God to help. While faith believes that God can and will do it, prayer spreads the letter uh, of trouble and grief before the Lord and opens ale, its budget, and then faith cries, I believe that God cares and cares for me. I believe that he will bring me out of my distress and make it promote his own glory. I find it interesting, this word cast, is that where we're at? Let's see, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. So two things, uh, one that casting is, um, what was it like, it, it, we can get the same word from, what is that called when you're dropped in the ocean, you're like at the beach and then there's that riptide, riptide, that's what it's called, riptide. So what happens in a riptide? You're, cut, you're smashed to the bottom and then you come up, hopefully to get some air, you smash to the bottom and come up. The word cast, imagine it like you were rolling a boulder up a hill and you leave it there at the feet of God and then you let go and what happens? After a while it comes back to you. What do you do? You cast it once again upon God and then what happens? It comes back. You ever notice? It always comes back. Oh, I'm worried about it all over again. I'm thinking about it all. Okay, give it back to God. Cast it on God. Roll it back up. Give it to God once again. And does that not picture a relationship of communication? I give it to the Lord, and then, oh, no, I got back to me. I'm sitting here thinking about it again. Okay, that's okay. Give it back to God again. And in the meantime, what do you got? You got a relationship taking place. You got prayer happening. Whatever it comes back to you, you give it right back to God as it rolls back to you. So that's the idea of that word cast. I found this an interesting little paragraph here, but we often judge parents by the children. When a child of God is full of worry and fear, doesn't the world have reason to believe that their father in heaven doesn't care for them? Our worry and fear reflects poorly and unfairly upon God. When we look at that kid and we wonder, kind of parents did that kid have? <laughs> Look at this. this kid wasn't even raised right. Man, they must have a neglectful parent or a parent that doesn't love them the way they do. And yet when we're full of worry and anxiety, what are we reflecting upon our Heavenly Father? What are we saying about our dad? Are we not saying, yeah, you don't understand. My dad doesn't really care that much. That's why I worry so much. That's why my fear and anxiety is so high. Is that true? Is that true about our God? Not the opposite of true. Of course our God cares. And of course he can do something about it. And so hopefully we're getting to know this God and we're trusting him with more faith and trust are synonyms. They mean the same thing. Faith is nothing more than trust. Are we trusting God? Even with the things that we don't understand and things that are pending, things that are yet future. Do we have faith? Are we trusting God and taking him at his word? Verse 8 says, be sober, be vigilant, 
Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Your adversary, the devil, walks about. Peter exhorts us to remain clear-headed, sober, and watchful, which is vigilant, because Satan has not yet been bound and restrained for a thousand years, as Revelation 21, 1 and 2 says, he will be. At the present time, the devil walks about. Um... Clark writes, he walks about, he has access to, to you everywhere. He knows your feelings and your propensities and informs himself of all your circumstances. Only God can know more and do more than he, therefore your care must be cast upon God. So the devil walks about. He knows you, he studies you, he knows your weaknesses, your propensities. I always talk, tell people, you know, you don't understand, they push my buttons. That person, man, they just got away. I don't know what it is. They're just pushing my buttons. And I always tell them, you ever think that maybe God wants you to be dead to buttons? Maybe that's the way that God is communicating to you, that you need to surrender that to him and die to that? Yeah, people don't want to hear that, though. Spurgeon goes on to say, we note Satan's goal, seeking whom he may devour. And, and I wrote this whole quote because I often say it, but I like the way he said it so much better than I. He isn't just looking to lick or nibble on his prey. He wants to devour. He can never be content till he sees the believer utterly destroyed. He would rend himself in pieces and break his bones and utterly destroy him if he could. Do not, therefore, indulge the thought that the main purpose of Satan is to make you miserable. He is pleased with that, but that is not his ultimate end. Sometimes he may even make you happy, for he hath dainty poisons, sweet to the taste, which he administers to God's people. If he feels that our destruction can be more readily achieved by sweets than by bitters, he certainly would prefer that which would best affect his end his end your destruction so we are to be vigilant sober because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion verse 9 resist him steadfast in the faith knowing that the same suffering are experienced by your brotherhood in the world and so that should bring a comfort not that other people are suffering but that you're not suffering by yourself there are other people suffering as well. I think one of the best ways we can do this is whatever you're tempted in, try to think of the spiritual counter to that. Let's say gossiping is your weakness and you find yourself tempted to gossip. In that moment of conviction, hopefully we're not so calloused that we've lost the ability to be convicted. But in that moment of conviction, replace gossiping with something that would be edifying, something that would be building up. If you're talking bad about something right there on the spot, how about you think of three to five things positive about that same person that you're gossiping about? Because I bet you they exist. Or whatever, whatever your you know, thing is. It's kind of, this is how I heard it in a message. It's like, 
you know, you think of the, the, the pink elephant in the room, and, you know, you talk about the pink elephant in the room, and uh, you begin to describe the pink elephant in the room, and all your mind can think about is a pink elephant in the room, and that's Satan's ploy. He fires those darts within our thoughts, and before you know it, we take over and we run with it. But when that dart is fired, how about we counter that with some spiritual activity like praying for that person instead of criticizing them? Or whatever, whatever the fiery dart that comes is, just think of a counter for that. Think of a, a scripture that can come against that. If you struggle with certain things, you should have ready, armed scriptures that would counter those types of things. If you struggle with worry and, and those types of things, and, and it's just your thoughts are overwhelmed with anxiety, Psalm 119, 165 should be your ready to go to verse. Great peace have those who love your law and nothing causes them to stumble. Think of the law. Think of God's word. Think of something that would be able to help you uh, combat, again, that worry. Jesus says, don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. Do we when we worry? Or do we just run with the worry? Do we run with what it is that we think we can do a better job than God at fixing whatever we think needs to be fixed. We should be praying, right? What happens when we pray? We bring in the light. Light exposes darkness and flees. He's telling us right here, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, key verse for the whole chapter, but may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's all done by God's grace. And if you look at every single one of these things, we can find in the Gospels a part, a point where Peter stumbled in all of these. He wants to do what? After you've suffered a while, he wants to perfect you, he wants to establish you. He wants to strengthen you. He wants to settle you. Peter was none of those things when he walked with Jesus. None of those things. But by God's grace, he became all of those things. And he's now writing in his older age of being perfected and established and strengthened and settled in his older age. Why? Because of the grace of God. That is the work that God is doing in each one of us. I pray and hope that we're participating with that work. We're not resisting that work. We're not relying on whatever it is, we, <laughs> anything outside of God. But we're relying on the Lord. We're trusting that God is doing these things. He's establishing you. He's strengthening you. He's settling you. He's perfecting you. That's God's job. He's on the hook for that. Is God going to be faithful to do his job? He can't but be faithful, right? And this is what he's doing. And so we, can we resist? Yes, we can resist those things. Peter came to the place where he began to let God know. I, I just love that section in 21, John 21. Peter, do you love me? And I did look it up, Brian, you're right. He said, do you agape me? Do you agape me? Do you phileo me? And he said, Lord, you know I phileo you. You know I phileo you. And Lord, you know I phileo you. 
I'm fond of you, Jesus. But before that, what was he? I'll die with you. You're not going to the cross. I will, I will do whatever needs to do. Here's two swords, one for you, one for me. Let's do it, Jesus, and take them on, right? All of that is Peter as you read through the Gospels. And it got to the place where he was humbled. And in that humility, he began to depend upon God. He began to look to God. He began to trust in God. And he began to trust less in himself. And that's the, the, the dual battle. Trusting in God is hyperbole if we're not, not trusting in self. You can't simultaneously trust in self and trust in God. Faith says, God, you've got this, and I don't. And I'm relying upon you. Lord, I'm trusting in you. I'm hoping in you, and I'm going to let you do this. And I just want to I just, I just have a front row seat and watch your glory as you do what you've promised. And it doesn't look like it right now, but I'm going to take you at your word because your word is saying that you are going to perfect me, establish me, strengthen me, and settle me. He ends with these verses in his, ending his letter by Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God which is in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one, one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you and uh, peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. We believe the Mark here is John Mark. Um, wrote, you know, the Gospel of Mark. And just a blessing that he was not only to Peter, but definitely to Paul. And uh, there was a split there for a little bit, right? Uncle Barnabas took him on the second missionary journey of Paul when there was a divide because he, he wanted to go back home and all of that. But again, one who matures. And look at the fond words he says. And so does my son Mark, uh, or Mark, my son. Now the kiss of love is, I think, the, the oriental kind of, you know, kiss on the cheek, kiss on the cheek. Um, so be careful with that in church there. You know, we can... Uh, get crazy with that, but uh, I think it's just a, a fond, affectionate, uh, just a, a greeting. What is ours today? We do a side hug. We do, we do a hug. We're careful with that. We do a handshake, but, you know, just that's all it means. And peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Questions, comments, concerns on First Peter 5. Um, I think it's kind of, um, you know, touching on casting on anxieties. It was kind of cool to hear that the, I guess the translation, the proper translation a lot of times we think it's a simple throw and that's it, not something and then we'll feel guilty when it comes back. Mm-hmm. So I think it's you know, a great deal of me that it's something that you continually do. You know what I mean? I think it speaks more of that relationship that we have with God as it does come back. Because I, you know, I'll be praying about something and all right, Lord, I'm just, I'm surrendering this to you. And then I got it back and I'm all like thinking about it. And I'm like, I thought I gave that to God. And then you you realize, all right, Lord, you you just want to talk to me. You want a relationship in this thing, not just this blind thing. And sometimes things take long. And so we keep praying. Keep asking, keep knocking. I think it definitely will help help give better insight 
in regards to encouraging another brother or sister. Mm-hmm. I think we would, and I'm sure I've been guilty of it, saying this. And then at the end, like, thinking you're encouraging, but really it's kind of like, you know, not really encouraging because then they feel bad, like, I'm not really casting my cares on the Lord. You're still holding on to it. And I like what Spurgeon said, you know, prayer, uh, prayer and faith, right? He said the two hands, you know, you're casting it with both hands. One is prayer. I got to pray and give it to God. The other one is faith. I got to trust that he can take care of it and he can handle it. So it's, it's, it is a big casting, you know, as you cast a net, if you will, into the ocean. And so it's a good visual for me as well. It's not just a simple... No, no, I got to work at casting it on the Lord because I, I want to hold it. I want to take it. I want to control it. And God says no. There was another thing I was thinking about um, in this section. What was it? The, the reoccurring things that, that we struggle with. I think the key in those things is, is finding that counter. I mentioned it, but finding that counter to be able... Asking a worry or not to worry is, is just, it's almost like an insult. It's sad. Like asking, it's like asking a prideful person, don't be prideful. It's like asking, you know, somebody who just, if that's your predominant struggle, it just seems so beyond, like it's not within me. I don't possess that which I need. Like if you're not a worrier, I don't know how you do that, but man, I can so applaud it. And so it seems, um, it seems impossible, but that's when we have to believe we're not supposed to be what we were. We are growing in this thing called faith. We, we should be being closer to God as we continue to walk with God and learn of God. We don't just come to Bible study for knowledge's sake. We truly come to learn about God and, and who God is and what his character is. And the more we can rely upon God and the less we can begin to rely and trust in self, the better we will be and the more by faith we are walking. And so when I say, um, if you're a, a, a worrier, one who, who, you know, it just it's consumes you, then have those ready go to scriptures. What is the enemy tempting you with? And take it out to its logical conclusion. So what does it mean if that thing that you're worrying about happens? What, what, like, what does it really mean? What does it come down to? Guess what? You're still going to heaven. Your name is still written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so even if the very, very, very worst happens, God still loves you. And nothing can separate you from that love. This scripture that, you know, cast all your care for he cares for you, what deity cares for their subjects? God cares about us. That separates Christianity. Islam, Islam's God does not care about that. And there's no certainty within Islam. They're hoping, and their hope is hope. Our hope is the blessed hope. And so, man, I mean, the, the contrast of he cares. He really does care. His nature is to care. He cares about you. He cares about what you care about. He cares about what you're anxious about. He cares about what you worry about. But the solution is not you continue to worry and control it through that. He's telling us over and over not to do that.
I just wanted to share that for myself. When things are really big, like the really big worries, mostly it's your children or something, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, for me. <laughs> They're so big, you can't do anything. So yeah. have faith at home. And so in that point, it's easier, easier because it's too big to stand back and, and see the, what God's doing. Because it's so big, you can't <coughs> fix it. The small things are harder mm. because you they oh, I can move this an mm. inch, I can move that an inch. Mm -hmm. And so You can affect itself, it. Yeah. But when it's a really big deal and you know, wow, that's that's you have to be God because it's bigger than me. Right, right. You know. That's a good so point. I struggle more with the smaller yeah, yeah. things than the bigger things. Definitely. <laughs> the things that we can affect and control we still shouldn't be worrying about that, right? Right. But, you know, <laughs> Amen. And that's usually myself. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, you know, you just, you love someone so much and you go, I know it. But you can't change that heart. Right. Can, right. So, prayer. Wow. You know, Keep praying. Lewis, you had something? Yeah, I would say, like, the first six speaks to me mostly. So, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He made exalt you in due time. So it's easy to like, you know, only be humble or kind of submit yourself to God, but when it doesn't happen on your time, on God's time, that's the hardest thing. Because God's think, timing. Yeah, God's timing. Because you think, oh, give me a week, a day. Yeah, yeah. And it's like six like, months later, like, yeah, you, and you go, the, the, right. it's, like it's, it says in due time is the, that's where for me is. Right? His due time, His not, time. not our due time. Oh, exactly. Amen. And that's the rubber meets the road. That's the real deal right there. That's where we all live. Yeah. No, I got this. I got a big faith, man. I can handle this for a week. And then six months go by, and you're like, I don't know. I haven't handled this for six months. Mark? I don't know if I can express this very well or not, but I really feel